please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Golds for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales Melbourne Volume 1 book published May 2020, The Hands That Shaped the Noose. It was school holidays December 1921 and 12-year-old Elma Tursky left home to run an errand in the heart of Melbourne. She was found the next day murdered. The man accused of her murder, Colin Ross, was hanged after witnesses who pocketed rewards lined up to add their testimonies. 86 years later, in 2008, DNA results would find a different conclusion. This is Elmer and Colin's story and how they crossed paths on that fateful day. Fateful day, indeed. You know, there was more than one pair of hands that fitted the noose around Colin Campbell Ross's neck. Uh, He was a 28-year-old businessman. And, oh, thank God for DNA. Honestly, doesn't it make you think back in history on how many cases people were wrongly charged for just so that they could get an outcome and satisfy the public outcry for justice? Yeah, just some of the cases we've dealt with over the years. You'd love to be able to go back and apply the science that we have now. So tell us what happened. What was behind this terrible crime? Okay, so going right back to the beginning, as I mentioned, Colin was a 28-year-old businessman. He had a widowed mother, three brothers and a sister, Lexi, and he ran a saloon, as they would call those days, which I guess is like a wine bar. A place where people went and drank. Yeah, Yeah. in the city. And he was no stranger to hard work. He'd worked in a quarry as a labourer, but he'd had an apodectomy, so he had to physically change careers. We're talking 1921 now, so he became licensee of the Australian Wine Cafe in the Eastern Arcade in Melbourne. So it's between Burke and Little Collins mm. Street, for those who know that area. It did have something of an ordinary reputation, I think, didn't it? Well, it was a bit shady. I don't know if you and I'd be seen drinking there, but then again, we've, we've frequented a few shady spots in our time. Today, it's where 120 Collins Street is, but then it was an area where the drinking clientele were sort of working girls, they're pimps, not, yeah. not that there's anything wrong with that, <laughs> and an array of petty criminals, basically. He was also no stranger to the police, Colin, because he had a record for carrying an unlicensed firearm, just petty stuff. He threatened somebody once and he was charged and acquitted with involvement in a robbery and shooting of a customer. But his path was about to be crossed by an innocent young girl. 12-year-old Alma Tershki. How did this come about? I mean, why was a 12-year-old girl in a place that's got something of a shady reputation? Yeah, well, it's an interesting alley because it also had a, a lady by the name of Madame Gurkha who was a fortune teller and ran a costume shop in that little lane. Alma's 12 years old, as we mentioned, mm-hmm. and it's school holidays. So it's Friday 30th December 1921 and she's headed out to run an errand for her grandmother. So Alma lived with her grandma and so did her little sister because Alma and her little sister and mother and father came over from South Africa in 1914. But on the voyage over, the mother died. So they left poor old Charles, a widow, and Alma and Viola, her little sister, motherless. So Charles went to work in Mafra, where he could get a bit of work. That's about 220 kilometres east of Melbourne, and there was some building work there. So the girls lived with their paternal grandmother, Elizabeth Tershke, in Jollymont Road in Jollymont. Mm-hmm. Now, that's pretty central, isn't sure, it? Sure, right close to town. Yeah, so Mrs Murdoch was the auntie and she was expecting Alma and she waited and she waited and she started to worry. So by dinner time, her uncle went to the local police station there, which was the Russell Street Police Headquarters, and they reported her missing. Every station in the area was notified that she had not been seen. Later on, a parade of witnesses could remember seeing her in the arcade and she was last seen before 3pm, just a few metres away from Collins Wine Saloon. Okay. So another witness said she looked afraid and someone said a man was seen to be following the girl. But she didn't return home that night, 
And the next morning, it was another young girl who found Alma about 6 a.m. on Saturday morning. And that little girl was out with her father, Henry Errington. And he was an out-of-work veteran of the Great War because there hadn't been a second war yet. And they used to collect bottles that were thrown out the night before and they'd cash those in. Mm -hmm. And she was in this little alleyway called Gun Alley. Terrible name, isn't it? It's only about 1.5 metres wide or about 5 feet and about 18 metres long, which is about 20 yards And she saw Alma's body and called her father. And ironically, he ran to the first shop he could find open. It was a butcher store. Where no one had collected the meat. That's it. A message was sent to the police. So a senior constable, J.P. Saltz, was first on the scene. And he was a bit overcome, as you would be. She was face upwards, not a stitch of clothing on her. She had violent marks on her face and body, bad bruising around her throat. She had been raped, or in the terminology of the day, brutally outraged. Did the police have any idea of what had happened to her? Were there any assumptions being made or any things that they thought was evidence straight away? A couple of little things, but very little clues. The position of her body was about 90 metres from Little Collins Street entrance of the arcade, and Collins Wine Saloon was just two doors into the Eastern Arcade from there, so she was near there. Yeah. They believed that she was lured somewhere and her body dumped back in the lane. She was lying straight with her hair drawn out from behind, which sort of suggests that she'd been placed in a bag, and then the bag was just pulled off her. Yeah. But the murderer, according to police, left no clues to his identity. He removed the cord from the body, which he'd used to strangle her, mm-hmm. and he disposed of her in Gun Alley, which was rarely used. Because of public hysteria, as you can imagine, school holidays, parents were scared to let their children out of their sight. They put the two top cops on the job. It was a senior detective, John Brophy, and Frederick Piggott. And the reporters of the day said the greatest activity was being displayed by the police. Senior detectives Brophy and Piggott worked night and day. And then the first government reward was offered. So it was initially £250 and then raised to £1,000 later. And these rewards became extremely important. Exactly. That reward is distributed to more than a dozen people, so it's very interesting. But Alma did have a funeral. The pallbearers were six of her school friends. So after the funeral, her father went to the scene of the death and he was accompanied by her uncle, who she was dropping the meat off to, his wife. And he was said to be much affected by the display of horror and sympathy shown by the crowds. And people visited the scene with children. I always find that so particularly odd. To Gun Alley. Remember how that happened in our Murphy story? Yeah. Find that such a macabre thing. Well, in the Murphy story, they went there and had picnics. I know. So the reward is offered, but when does Colin Ross enter the picture? Yes, good question. Well, as the first few weeks of January passed and there wasn't an arrest, everything started to get a little bit tense. Police methods were called into question. Newspaper reports said there was no results, no fresh clues. Even the Tershki family himself started to say, you know, if the police had got onto it that night with more gusto, they might have got further along with the investigation or found her earlier. But Colin Ross was one of the witnesses who'd seen Alma on that afternoon. He and two other men were questioned by the police and he gave, without any fear of prejudice, a Mm. full account of his movements, as he would. He wasn't guilty. So he said he saw her that afternoon and that was his only connection to Alma. She passed by his saloon. After Alma's death, just a coincidence, Colin allowed his saloon licence to expire and that was 31st of December 1921. The police wouldn't renew it because of the store's connection with the shooting about six weeks prior, but Colin's mother, Mrs Elizabeth Campbell, was quick to point out the shooting had nothing to do with the closing, nor had Alma's murder. But anyway, the detectives interviewed him along with the other witnesses and took his statement. They interviewed everyone. You know, there were people who worked in that alley. So there were other people who'd seen Alma, uh, seen her there? Yeah, absolutely. There was people drinking in the saloon who'd seen her. Madame Gurka supposedly had seen her, the clairvoyant, not that she called herself a clairvoyant. A couple of the waitresses had seen her. She had been seen. So about eight 
days after, the detectives called for Colin again and they asked him more questions. And then 13 days after Alma's murder, Colin went with them again, assuming it was more questioning to help the case. And at 5pm that day, he was escorted across the road to the watch house, charged by Sergeant Detective Piggott with Alma's rape and murder. Now, he protested his innocence and he had a viable alibi and he had witnesses. But how viable was his alibi? I mean, what was it? He was with a lady friend that night. She'd come into the bar. They'd arranged to meet. He went home, had dinner, met her at nine. They'd been together and then she'd gone home and he'd gone home. Yeah. But he wasn't in her company all night. Well, he saw her into the tram and off she went. Okay. That was long after Alma had disappeared. What happened next was a travesty of justice for Colin and for Alma. Now, at this stage, everyone's breathing a sigh of relief, thinking, got this murderer off the street. So it started the trial. First of all, he got to say his side of the story. And he said that he came into the shop about 2pm. It was a quiet day. When you say shop, that's a saloon. Yep, yep. Between 2 and 3 p.m. he was standing in front of the shop. He said, I was looking about and I saw a girl about 14 or 15 years of age in the arcade. She was walking towards Burke Street and stopped and looked back in a fancy dress costume window. I later saw her walking back. So she'd obviously gone to the butcher shop and was heading back with a parcel of meat. He went on to accurately describe what Alma was wearing and that his friend, Miss Gladys Lindemann, came to the saloon about 4 p.m. They spoke for an hour and they made an appointment to have a date that night after 9pm. So Colin stayed at work till 6, there was witnesses who saw him there. He went home, he had tea, he left at 8pm to meet Gladys. Met her at 9, they stayed together until quarter to 11. He took her to the train at Spencer Street Station and he got home himself around 11.50 and stayed there. Now, the witnesses, here they come, they line up. All having presumably received something of the reward? Well, they all do receive something of the award and some of them have agendas and some genuinely have seen something, so they've come forward in good faith. The police are under pressure. They've got someone they've locked up. Mm. They've got people who want to say that he was there and they're more than happy to run with that. Yeah. Is it for some of them that they're especially happy to give evidence because there's a quid in it? Oh, without a doubt. So here's our lined up witnesses. Madame Gurkha or Julie Gibson was a real name. Now, Julie Gibson or Madame Gurkha is fascinating. She's a book in her own right and you can find books on her. She doesn't call herself a clairvoyant, but basically she told people their fortunes in that arcade. She also had her costume shop there and did readings and she didn't like the type of clientele that were in the arcade course of Collins Saloon. Madame Gurkha thought he changed the tone of the arcade, so she didn't like Colin to begin with. So she said that Colin had confessed to violating and choking Alma to her. What did he do? Just walk into the shop and say, I killed the little girl? I mean, considering they had no relationship and she didn't like him, you know, I don't know when he was supposed to have done that. But anyway, she got £25 of the reward, which is considerable money in 1921. The next one is barmaid Ivy Matthews. She worked for Colin at his saloon for just short of a year, and her employment ended in November. But on that day, and we're talking December now, she was down there meeting a friend, so they were in the saloon. Now, when she spoke to the police on 5th of January, she said she knew nothing but at Colin's trial. She spoke of seeing Colin in the back room with Alma. She claimed the next day after hearing of the murder, she decided she had to come forward. She went back and challenged his story, and he confessed to raping Alma to her, she said. So first of all, she didn't see the girl at all. Then Mm. she did, and then Colin confessed to her as well. Yeah, when she went back to challenge him about the girl being in the bar. How much of the reward did she get? Uh, She got £350. Yeah, She said that he returned to leave Alma's body in the street later after meeting with Gladys. Then it came out that he'd sacked Ivy and she sought legal aid to get compensation because she thought she owed a part of the business. So there was bad blood between them. Interesting, Ivy rented a flat from Madame Gurkha and it said she encouraged the psychic to testify against Colin. 
So during the trial period, she had to be given a police guard in the end because she'd been threatened. I don't know by whom, but she had a police guard. Is this Ivy or Madame Gurkha? Ivy. Ivy. Yeah, she had a police guard throughout the whole trial. So as I mentioned, she got that £350, which is a fortune for an out-of-work barmaid, and she got £87 from the Herald, who had a reward of £250 of their own offered. So she did pretty nicely out of Colin. Absolutely. Who else? Well, then we go on to Olive May Maddox. Now, Olive was a prostitute, a married woman separated from her husband, probably trying to survive. She said she saw Alma having a drink in a room at Colin's saloon that afternoon. She challenged Colin that Alma was too young, and he said, oh, if she wants it, she can have it. She admitted she saw the description of Alma in the paper and came forward after Ivy Matthews, a fired barmaid, suggested she should come forward. Now, there was no evidence of alcohol found in Alma's stomach, although there was some speculation about whether it would be there 24 hours after the murder. Because remember, we're talking 1921 science here. Okay, so Ivy involved again. Yep. Ivy's becoming an extremely key person in this whole thing. Isn't she indeed? And Olive got £170 for that. Huge amount of money. Right, then we've got the men. Let's line the blokes up. So we've got an itinerant labourer, Francis Lane Upton. He read about the crime in the paper, supposedly, and the reward, presented himself to police and said he was in the area that night trying to rake up a drink, in his words. Okay. He came across Colin's saloon around 12.30 to 1am. He said he was sober and thirsty and he heard a couple talking about getting rid of something. And when he called out for a bottle, Colin appeared with blood on his hands, thrust the bottle at him, and Francis took off with his drink. He threw the blood-printed bottle away and it was never found. So this is in direct opposition to what Colin said, that he got home at 12.50 and stayed there. Yeah, exactly. So So this is is 12 to 1 back at the wine bar. So this, from the police's point of view, is now looking like they might have the right man, of course. They're thinking, well, this is good. We've got a witness who said he saw him back there at the time. yeah. And so Francis, or Frank as he was probably called, got a share of the reward as well? Yes, and he certainly did. And so did Sidney John Harding. Had at least 10 previous convictions, but they put him forward as a witness. He was on bail when he bolted and was re-arrested and detained in Melbourne Jail, where he met Colin, who was there for Alma's murder. He claims they got talking and Colin confessed Alma's murder to him. He got a pardon and £200. (laughs) Then, these are little obscure ones. There was a vaudeville artist, David Alberts, claims he was walking in the arcade around 7.30pm when a man asked him if he had a pencil. He said no, but he thought it was Colin Ross. So that would make Colin Ross's alibi that he was home having tea at that time null and void. He got £30 share. And honestly, on it goes. Another prisoner who met Colin in jail and heard him talking of Alma got £50 for coming forward. Blanche and her daughter Muriel got £20 each because they witnessed Alma in the arcade and Colin in the saloon doorway. Violet Sullivan got £20. She found a piece of the fabric of the dress on Footscray Road and believed it to be from Alma's Never Found Clothing and believed it was discarded by Colin, as stated by Criminal Harding in his testimony. And there's a couple of Italian guys who were guests at a nearby Italian club who were in the arcade that night. They spotted him, £20 each. Everyone made a small fortune over Colin. So was that what led to his conviction and eventual hanging? No, it didn't help. But no, the most damning blow for Colin came from a government analyst who matched the auburn hair of Alma with the hairs on a blanket found in Colin's wine saloon. Now, the defence countered that this expert lost credibility on the stand and the blankets weren't immediately removed and they weren't secured and they weren't sealed. Mm. But basically, when an expert gets up there and goes, that hair is Alma's, it's been found in the saloon on a blanket and you've got all those other witnesses saying, well, we saw Alma in there having a drink and he confessed to us and whatever. He was a hangman, for want of a better term. Yeah, okay. That's presumably how things proceeded. Yeah. He was found guilty and he was sentenced to death by hanging. He said, and his voice trembled at the time, if I am hanged... 
I am hanged an innocent man. My life has been sworn away by desperate people. Mm. And desperate they were. Now his poor mother, Elizabeth, she sold a house to pay for funds to go to a higher court. She begged the Attorney General to allow her to appeal and he said to her she'd be wasting her time and money. Four months after Alma's murder, Monday 24th of April 1922, he walked, according to the papers, steadily and unaided onto the scaffold where he was hanged. I've heard that the hanging of Colin Ross was a, a pretty ordinary affair. For anyone who's a little bit sensitive, just speed ahead now or sing something for 10 seconds while I just mention this. I've included this in the book because I think it just goes to show how brutal capital punishment is. Some say the whole process took three minutes from the time he entered the cell to the time he was hanged. Another report said he didn't die instantly. It said that his spinal cord was fractured, not severed, and he continued with rasping breaths and convulsed on the rope. Three times Colin bent his knees and flexed his arms as he battled the bonds before he died. So his death by asphyxiation took 8 to 20 minutes. So what was the process then that led to the further exploration of his case in 2008? Yeah, that's an interesting one. DNA was first used in Australian criminal proceedings in 1989. So that's when we first had it. But basically, it's like a genetic profiling. Its accuracy means they can pinpoint who done it. Yeah. In 1995, a researcher by the name of Kevin Morgan, God bless him, had the hair that was found on the blanket in Colin Ross's wine saloon. So this is the hair that the expert in 1922 said belonged to Elmer. Exactly. That right. it came from the scalp of Elmer Tushky, yep. little Elmer. And it had been such a damning piece of evidence at the time, nail on the coffin, so yeah. to speak. He conducted a test and found that with the DNA that it was not Elmer's hair. He also had the Australian Federal Police confirm the results. Then two judges concluded the evidence against Colin Ross was flawed and recommended the Attorney General send the case to the Court of Appeal to seek a pardon. Now, what was wonderful here is that the families were working together. In 2008, Colin Campbell Ross was the first person in Australia ever granted a posthumous pardon, the only pardon for a judicially executed person in Australia. 80 plus years after the event. Yeah, a bit late even then. Yeah. But Alma's niece, Betty Arthur, was part of the process and she said the tragic death of Alma had greatly affected her mother, Viola, which was Alma's sister. Yeah. And of the pardon, she said, it's a tragedy for everybody that the actual perpetrator was never caught. It's a cold case. And Alma's niece, Betty, said, and an innocent man had lost his life as well. Kevin Morgan actually went and traced senior detective Pigger's grandson and advised him that his book, Gun Alley, Murder, Lies and Failure of Justice which came out in 2012 by Simon & Schuster, if you want to have a read, would be distressing for the Pickett family descendants. He said that he found the family tremendously supportive were his words and they understood it seemed a wrong person had been executed. Colin Ross's remains were actually found. It's kind of normal, as we know, for prisoners to be buried on the jail site. Yeah. And Colin's remains were discovered in archaeological digs by Heritage Victoria in 2007 after Pentridge closed. But because lime had been thrown into the coffin, his skeleton was preserved. So the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine was able to identify him by superimposing his image over a recovered skull and finding a perfect match. So as a result of his pardon, his remains could then be returned to his family and they requested that he be cremated and given a Christian burial. Believe it or not, less than a week after Colin Ross's hanging, Alma's father, Charles, died as well. He was out hunting at Mafra with his nephew, Gordon, and Gordon shot a number of rabbits and didn't realise he'd struck his uncle. Yeah. I know, so coroner was satisfied it was an accident. So now Viola was the only member left, of course, and the grandmother. Charles was buried and Alma was reinterred and buried with her father. At the end of the day, you've got a cold case where somebody got away with murder and Colin Ross in his farewell letter to his family said, day is coming when my innocence will be proved. 
86 years it took, but it came. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please consider hitting the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road tour this year. <laughs>